0: Heavenly Father, on this day that many in the Western world are recognizing their earthly fathers, I pray that during this time you would become our great focus. The very fact, Lord, that we can gather in a place like this on a Sunday morning and address you as Father is miraculous and a testimony to the great work of your Son, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross to make us sons and daughters. And so we we want to glorify you on this Father's Day. We want to rightly worship you with our words, in our prayers, but most importantly, Lord, in our hearts. We want this gathering to be a gathering of worshipers. And so I ask, Lord, that as you've prepared us through song and through scripture and through the prayers that have already been lifted up, I ask now as the gracious Father that you are, that you would help us in your spirit hear you speak. You have said much to your children over the centuries, and you've given us a glorious word here and Second Timothy, to hear how we are to love you by loving one another. Show us, Lord, what this hard love looks like. Let us not be afraid to love our brothers and sisters that we might see them set free from the entanglements of sin. We ask, Lord, that you'd be gracious with us during this time. Bless this church, Lord. Bless your true church here in San Jose with your mighty presence. We pray for all of our brothers who are faithfully proclaiming the gospel, maybe even during this time. We pray for all of our brothers and sisters who have gathered in the churches here in this South Bay and throughout the world that they would magnify your name, that they would glorify your Son, and that they would worship you in your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you would be greatly glorified during this time when this little church worships you in spirit and truth. We ask all these things in Christ's name, for he is worthy. Amen. Amen. Good morning. I'm thankful you're here on this Father's Day. Um, if you've been here some time, you, you know that I always I, I I struggle with these days, um, and it's not that there's anything wrong with the days. I think it's fantastic. Um, I just am so caught up during the week, usually studying and praying and working, that the day comes and someone says, oh, by the way, it's Father's Day. I'm like, oh, that's right. Um, I felt really bad when it was Mother's Day, but since I'm a father, I don't feel too bad that it wasn't really on my agenda for the sermon. Um, Father's Day is easy for us, though, because every time we gather, we are gathering to worship our Heavenly Father. And so we can say that this day really should be no different than every day when you recognize your Father through Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles um, open, if you don't, please open them to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We are going to continue working through uh, this one of Paul's last letters, if not his last letter, to his spiritual son. Timothy looked at Paul as a father, and Paul's writing like a father to Timothy. And we get to look today at um, some words that I think we all hear and agree upon, but really struggle exercising. And so by God's grace, we will see it a little more clearly on how we are to truly love one another. You can probably tell by the title of the Sermon, Loving Correction, that it's going to be a little different than we saw last week. Back in verse 14, the Apostle Paul charged Timothy. He charged him in the presence of God not to quarrel about words. And Timothy was to tell the church, I don't want you fighting I don't want you arguing over irreverent babble. That's not the mark of a servant of the Lord. And then Paul comes back here, and he includes Timothy in this command. As a pastor and as an overseer of the sheep, look at verse 23. Paul says to Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Now, that's that's a pretty difficult task in light of the fact that Timothy was responsible for proclaiming God's truth in a world filled with lies. And he says, I don't want you arguing over the foolish things. And Timothy had to hear this and by God's grace would submit if he wanted to be that honorable vessel in the house of God, that that servant that was like gold and silver. If he wanted to be set apart and submissive and eager to serve Christ, then he would hold his tongue when he ought not argue. He would flee, as we saw last week, his youthful passions. And instead, he would pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace in community. And so this charge given to Timothy as an elder was, I don't want you to be quarrelsome. I don't want you to engage in it. I don't want you to start it. But I do need you to speak truth into people's lives. I need you to engage in corrective, loving discipline. And the two almost seem contradictory. On the one hand, I don't want you quarreling. On the other hand, you're going to have to love in such a way where it's probably going to create corals. So how do we reconcile this as a body of believers? The parallels with this passage in 1 Timothy 3 are striking. He certainly is talking to Timothy as a pastor, but I do not want you to hear this as a pastoral teaching. It certainly is, but it is for the entire church as well because what Paul says to Timothy here is how we all want to relate to one another how we all want to not engage in those dialogues of irreverent babble and to have the right dialogues of truth that love our brothers and sisters and by God's grace set them free from sin. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16 and in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus made it very clear that the keys of the kingdom belong to the church. And that means the church has the biblical authority to bind and loosen members of a local body. And that means you need to hear this As much as I do or Pastor Kurt or any other pastor or teacher of God's word. Every member is responsible for the watch care of one another. So I don't want you hearing this saying, yeah, Pastor, you better do that. You better listen to this teaching. Amen to that. You're right. But I want you to hear it yourself as well. Because we have the same responsibility to love properly, to not quarrel, to call people back to Christ. All right? So are your hearts ready to hear that? Okay. You came in thinking, oh, this is a pastoral teaching. It's just for you. It's for all of us. So let's, let's have God, by His grace, as our Father, take these teachings and apply them to our hearts and minds that we might actually live them out. Because we don't want to gather here and do religion. I don't want to just preach the Word and you hear the Word and us leave unchanged. We want to be radically changed forever. Three ways God speaks to us. He tells us, don't quarrel. Sounds like a father, right? My father, you say, stop fighting. That's good, too don't quarrel. Number two, do correct. Engage in loving correction. Number three, be hopeful, because this is hard. Be hopeful. This is a hard, hard process. Number one, don't quarrel. Verse 23, Paul says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So Paul starts off really simply, says, listen, I don't want you biting. I don't want you giving in and engaging in these foolish controversies, and I don't want you initiating them either. In fact, when he says foolish, ignorant controversies, I love it when the Greek translates completely. It literally, it's moronic. He doesn't want us engaged in these foolish, moronic dialogues that are uneducated, ill-informed, and not profitable. The ESV renders the Greek word controversy, I like debate better because in a debate, someone's trying to win. Not terribly concerned about truth. We just want to make sure that we are on the winning side. Now, you know what types of dialogues that I'm talking about. You know these foolish, ignorant debates. We hear them all the time in the secular conversations. Just most recently, I heard at least twice Who is the best NBA player of all time? LeBron James or Michael Jordan? And no, Steph Curry's not in that conversation yet. Who would win a fight? Darth Vader or Lord (laughs) Voldemort? It's Darth Vader, by the way. That's easy. Number three, which was better, the book or the film of The Lord of the Rings? I think we could say they were both good. Certainly not worth arguing over. Which is the better smartphone, Android or Apple? In the context of the church, it usually has to do with how we practice our faith, a biblical teaching that we, we twist or we add to. Paul addressed this specifically, these types of controversies in 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen to what he said in the first letter he wrote to Peter. He said, Timothy, command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to the myths and endless genealogies. Those are the LeBron, Michael Jordan conversations that we are not to have here. In the Catholic Church, when I came out, I spent a lot of time debating and dialoguing about praying to saints and papal infallibility and the bodily assumption of Mary. I couldn't see it in the text And so I engaged in these, what I would look back on now, and say foolish controversies in the church. Now, in the evangelical church, we're not free from that, just because we don't have Catholic doctrine teaching that. In the evangelical church, we argue about whether or not the Bible affirms things like homosexuality, or no-fault divorce, or female pastors, we argue about multi site simulcast worship services, contemporary versus traditional music, pews, chairs, which is the best translation of the Bible? Whether or not church discipline is real and how to exercise it. Now, Paul is not saying these dialogues in and of themselves are wrong, but he is saying when you are arguing about them in a petty, foolish manner, all it will do is cause disunity in the body that God wants unified. If the Bible teaches to it, we can speak to it. But how we speak to it will determine whether or not we are submitting to the passage at hand. Look again, verse 23, it says, if we engage in these, what, a breed quarrels. And breed is the perfect word that means to give birth. You ever had a relationship with someone and it was going really well, and then you engaged in a foolish, ignorant dialogue, maybe an argument, and suddenly there's a break in that relationship? And you're not talking like you used to. You're not texting like you used to. And you think, well, what what split us anyway? What was that argument over? Garlic fries? A Philly cheesesteak? I mean, seriously, these are the dialogues that we're going to allow to breed corals. Paul's saying that's what happens here in the church as well. It'll take the peace that you enjoy, a dialogue that you shouldn't have had, and it will ruin it. We had a member here a while back who actually called another member an unsaved heretic because this man read C.S. Lewis, and he argued that because C.S. Lewis was sympathetic to certain teachings we would consider to be unbiblical, he said that man is a heretic and unsaved, and there was a breach in their relationship, and that is wretched. No place for that in the body of Christ. Paul was right when he said in 1 Timothy 1.4, such dialogue, such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is what we're supposed to be doing, advancing God's work. So what is Paul's solution for this? He makes it really simple. Number one, do not engage. Don't listen to it. That's a very easy, I'm not having this dialogue. I love you, but we're not having this dialogue, and you disengage It is impossible to have a foolish, ignorant dialogue if you do not speak. That's not a dialogue, that's a monologue. Let the other person speak. Separate yourself from it that you might guard the peace, because that's what we were told to do in verse 22 to pursue peace, not foolish debates. Now, this means, my beloved, that we must be both wise and humble. We must be wise enough to realize this is a foolish dialogue. I ought not engage. I don't think we're terribly good at that. I think that at times, our love for people, we want to be patient, and so so I'm gonna be, I'm gonna listen longly because that's what James said. And that's good, and sometimes not. Sometimes you want to just end the conversation politely and lovingly, but do not engage. We must be wise enough to know when not to listen, and we must be humble enough to know when to close our mouth when you have a really good answer. Because that's the hardest part, right? The controversy started, the debate's going, and you got the answer, and you want to give it to them, and you want to show them, and that's all pride. So if we can be wise and humble simultaneously, then by God's grace, maybe we can submit to this first solution that Paul has, saying, don't have the argument. Render it powerless. Render it powerless. Proverbs 21, 23. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself what? Out of trouble. Out of trouble. As a parent, you know this, fathers, it's Father's Day, you know this. It was so good when one of your two children or one of your three children did not bite on the argument. Wasn't it good? It just takes the one to remain silent and then there is no argument. We need to learn that in the church. He gives us another option. He says, I want you to not engage. So we're to not listen and we're to not start it. We're not to be argumentative as the people of God. It's really interesting. Look at verse 24. He says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. And in some of your translations, that loss, that servant, can also be translated slave. That's actually better because a slave does not act upon his own will. A slave submits to the will of his master. And your master, your king, your savior is saying, don't start arguments. Don't be the contentious one in the church that's going around and stirring things up. Don't be that person. Again, Proverbs has much to say. Proverbs 18, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Verse 6, a fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. Verse 7, a fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Oh, my goodness, how glorious it would be if we just measured our words. We thought before we spoke We disengaged when we should, and we didn't incite the riot. You don't want to be the fool of Proverbs 18, starting controversies that bring division over dialogues that should never have taken place at all. Now, some of you might be thinking, and I pray you are, you have taught us, Pastor, that we're supposed to contend for the faith. You told us that there are times when debate is required, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Jude chapter 3, we are urged to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul said, we, speaking of himself, now he's the one writing this to Timothy, Paul says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience. You say, now wait, what is the difference? What is the difference? Are we to contend or not contend? Are we to remain quiet or are we to fight for the faith? The honorable servant, listen, the honorable servant knows what to fight for and how to fight the honorable servant knows this is a profitable dialogue and this is not. I will engage in this lovingly and humbly. I will not touch this. And they know how to do it. And that is from a position of humility and grace. They will contend. They will destroy arguments. They will take every lofty opinion and they will take it captive for Christ, but they'll do it in such a way that their words and their mannerisms and their heart will be revealed that they love that person more than the argument, that they love that person more than whatever they're debating. Hard to do. This passage, listen very carefully, this passage does not render the church moot. It does not say, do not speak, but it does say, speak on substantive issues. Do not engage in foolish, stupid, controversial dialogue. And then it says, and do it with love that flows from your heart, that that person knows that when you're talking to them, they know that you are more concerned about them than you are winning the debate. So, first he says, don't quarrel. And then he says, but you must engage in a corrective process. Point number two, what is this going to look like? Look at verse 24. Paul says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Okay, we got that. But what? Kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Again. The the parallels between this passage in 1 Timothy 3 and the qualifications of an elder are striking. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul says to Timothy, as an elder, you must be able to teach, you must be gentle, you must not be quarrelsome. So we see the parallels here. So, Timothy, you can't get caught up in these quarrels, and whatever you do, don't start them. But when you go to correct, make sure pride and your name and your reputation do not lead in these conversations. You must not go to correct your brother and love your brother through dialogues and debates with a prideful heart. Instead, he says what? You've got to be kind, instructive, patient, and corrective. Kind, instructive, patient, and corrective. Did you notice that all four of those are the opposite of the quarrel? Some dialogue? When you're quarreling, you're not being kind. When you're quarreling, you are not necessarily instructing. And usually when we're quarreling, we're not terribly patient. I want to look at these very briefly because this is not just for pastors. This is how we engage as well when we go, especially when we go to correct a brother or sister in error. He says, first, I want you to be kind. That's kind to who? Look again. Or kind to whom? Kind to everyone. That means there's no one in your life, a brother or sister biologically, a brother or sister in Christ, a coworker that you are not to be kind to. And you're thinking now, There are people I just really don't like. Understood? I think that there are times in the church where there are people that we are commanded to love, but we not like those people very much. It doesn't matter. You still must be kind to them. You still must say hello to them. Look them in the eye. They're creating the image of God, and if they know Christ, they've been saved by grace. Lack of kindness has no place in the body of Christ. And, oh, we've seen it over the years here. And I, and I don't know why it's one thing that just causes my fire to burn when I see a lack of kindness towards brothers and sisters here. And there will be a fight, and it has taken place. We are to be kind to everyone. You can render that gentle. You can render it mild. I love this. Treating everybody fairly. Treat someone as you want to be treated. Love someone as you want to be loved. That excludes all unnecessary harshness, all unnecessary criticism. It eliminates yelling. It eliminates sharpness, rudeness, and that hateful tone of condemnation when the person talking to you is talking down to you. And they're talking down to you because they want you to feel low. Now, that said, kindness does not mean wishy-washy, super soft, or indecisive language. It also, listen... This is a small point. It doesn't mean that we talk in an unnatural voice. It doesn't mean that you adopt some type of very strange cartoon-like character. And, you know, when you're going to talk, if that's not how you talk, don't talk like that. Use your voice, but be kind in your speech. It is not indirect speech. We misinterpret that today. If we speak truth directly and lovingly to people today, we think, whoa, you're being harsh Direct speech is not unkind. In fact, Proverbs would quite say quite the otherwise. So we must be kind. Secondly, it says you must be able to teach. That is one of the distinguishing qualities in 1 Timothy 3 between the elder and the deacon is this ability to teach. Specifically, we understand the proclamation of the Word of God. But in a more general sense, this applies to all of us because the ability to teach is not just having head knowledge about Christ. It's being able to take the word of God and speak the truth to someone in love that they're able to understand it and submit to it. And that's what we want here, especially when we're going to those who have been ensnared, as it says here by the devil, that you're going to go with God's word and be able to teach them and show them where they are mistaken. First Peter 3.15, Always be prepared, what? To make a defense, yet do it with gentleness and Respect. Gentleness and respect. We we want to avoid the ignorant controversies and we want to bring God's truth to bear on real issues, real dialogues that should take place. Now number three, I believe, is the most difficult in this list. I really do. Be kind to everyone. Number two, be able to teach. And number three, patiently endure evil. And he has to put that one in there, doesn't he? Because that is the hard one. It's the hard one for the flesh. Patiently endure endure evil when you are wronged. Let me rephrase it. Do not be resentful when you are treated poorly. Now, I'll be the first one to confess my sins before you. Sometimes it's really, really hard to patiently endure evil. When you are being criticized and ridiculed and mocked, hard for the flesh not to want to fight back with your words or maybe your fists. But that's exactly what Paul was saying to Timothy here. It's going to be hard, Timothy. Timothy knew it already. He said, it's only going to get harder. Persecution was coming. We're in 68 AD. It's going to get worse for Timothy and the church. And so he says, you have to endure the evil that will come. Our flesh wants to seek vengeance. Proverbs eighteen six again. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. Listen, just because... Someone invites a beating doesn't mean you should say yes to the invitation and beat them. I'm not talking about physical, but with our lips, we respond with a fight. That's not patiently enduring the evil. Timothy had to hear this. I need to hear this. We, as a church, we got to hear this because the attacks come, my beloved. If you're going to pursue Christ, they'll come from outside. They'll come from inside. And either way, doesn't matter. Paul saying, patiently endure the evil that comes against you. John 15, 20. We must not remember what our Lord said to his disciples. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, what? They will persecute you also. Now, if that statement's true, our Lord was perfect, our Lord lived a perfect life. If they took him, and arrested him, and beat him, and crucified him on a Roman cross, and he was perfect. What should I expect for someone like me? What should we expect as sinners saved by grace? If he didn't make it out in perfection, and we stumbled through much of this, we ought to expect the same or worse. But this expectation then does not give us license to engage in vengeance. It should not surprise us when people lie about you. It should not surprise you when people slander you, when they say all kinds of evil things about you. Jesus said, blessed are you if they persecute you like that. Hurtful speech that comes our way, but our response can never, ever, ever be, I'll get them back. That's not the biblical response. That's not the response of a faithful, honorable servant in the house of God. 1 Peter chapter 2 Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Now listen to this. So here's your example. The power comes from the cross, but here's the example. Verse 23, 1 Peter 2. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges judges justly. That was his father. Jesus had every right. He was perfectly innocent to fight back. He had all the power of being a holy God to fight back, but what did he do? He remained silent and left it to his father to adjudicate. must be the same for us. Boy, that's hard, because that means you're putting all your faith and all your trust in God to make things right, not by your hand, but by his. We are to be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring all sorts of persecution and evil. And lastly, we are to correct gently anyone who stands in opposition to God, His Word, or the church, to correct them. Now, the, the most common response to this in our cultural moment is to say nothing. We are, we are a real quiet people in the Western world. Not, I know not in the mainstream media and certainly not on Twitter, but we are in the church. We are in the church. We think to ourselves, if I can just isolate, I'll be nice to people, but I'm not going to confront anybody. I'm not going to point out anything. I'm certainly not going to call someone on their sin. We just will let God sort it all out in the end and see if we can make it through. There's a problem with that. That's not what Paul is teaching here. That's not what the Bible teaches about having a right watch care over one another. Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6. Listen to this. These These words are pure gold. Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. How did Judas greet Christ in the garden? With a kiss. How often do we greet one another and say, Hello, brother, how are you? And we kiss and we extend a temporal love when we know we should be speaking the truth in love, gently but correcting too often, I'm afraid, here, the word that Paul uses here for correction. I know that the Greek I don't usually do, but this is important. It's padeo, and it's a word that we used a lot when we were going through the parenting seminar. It's not a correction like in verse 24 it says, able to teach, it's a different word. It is a correction that involves discipline. It is a correction that involves training. And so the reason that Paul says correct them gently because he knows that that correction is painful, and he knows that that type of correction usually is responded to with a defensive posture, and usually a striking back. So he says you must do it, but you must do it gently. Now it is somewhat ironic, my beloved, that Christians struggle receiving corrective criticism. It is really interesting that that in the body of Christ that we struggle having brothers and sisters come to us in love to tell us something about ourselves that we need to hear. Ironic for two reasons. One, we of all people know that our hearts are what? Desperately wicked. We of all people know how prone we are to fool ourselves and to fall into sin. And therefore, we of all people know how much we need each other to come alongside gently and lovingly and graciously, but directly say, hey, do you see what's going on? Do you know what is happening in your life? And we of all people know that we have the power in Christ to overcome it. So the church should be radically different from the world. The church should be a place where we freely and lovingly exchange right criticism. That we might grow and be hopeful because in Christ we can. There is no sin that a brother or sister may point out in your life that you cannot overcome in Christ. if that brother or sister comes to you in love and they are right, you should be hugging them and kissing them and taking them out to dinner or lunch or coffee saying, you helped me. I was ensnared and you got me out. Not the general response that we see. Correcting correcting gently does not mean correcting without power. In fact, that word in the Greek that correct, that gentle correction, it was used also for a colt that had been broken. So it was power under control. When you go to a brother or sister who's caught in a sin and you bring the word of God, you're bringing power. This is God's word, but we must do it in a gentle manner. Just like this tamed colt. you must go in humility and in gentleness, but not without the power of God. So please do not see correct gently with beating around the bush or or saying a little bit and being afraid that's not what this is saying this is saying in all humility bring the power of god that they might be set free from the sin that ensnares them that means going to a brother or sister with the word of god on your mouth and the love of christ in your heart what a what an instrument you can be what an instrument there's not a soul in here right now at this very moment that does not need a brother or sister coming to us at this very moment and saying hey here's something. And if we knew each other better, we'd have those dialogues. But unfortunately, we don't. And so we don't even know what to say. A few years ago, when confronting a brother who was verbally and psychologically abusing his wife, instead of receiving the gentle correction, he lashed out. He lashed out against me. He lashed out against our church. He tried to smear the reputation of our ministry here at Cambrian Park. He engaged in an ad hominem argument. You know that attack the man. That's easy to do. Attack the pastors, attack the deacons, attack the church so I can avoid the issue. It's effective for those who are not savvy in spiritual warfare. It fools many when the attacks are engaged in the wrong way. He did this by sending out a multi-page letter to several pastors and churches throughout the area trying to ruin the reputation of our ministry and our church. Now listen, he may have fooled some people, but God's not fooled. God is not fooled by these shenanigans. I, the elders, this church, we were never the issue at hand. The issue was sin that was in his marriage that was tearing their relationship apart. And per this passage, we, as a church, made no attempt to retaliate. We made no attempt to say, oh yeah, here's what you did. We simply walked through Matthew 18, we lovingly exercised corrective church discipline, and then we committed him and his family to prayer. Why did we do that? That's what the Bible calls us to do. We're people of the book. This means that we don't remain silent but we don't seek vengeance. We must speak the truth in love. We must correct gently and humbly. And we must do this because we know how desperately we need it To We're sinners saved by grace, but we are still in our sin. So when we correct a brother or sister, we don't go to them as though we are holy in the Tao, as though we've arrived. We go to them saved by grace. And so we can go with great humility. Because thereby, the grace of God, you go too. But we do go in strength. I like the Lutheran commentator Lenski. He put it like this. He said, to wield the word of God is to strike with a hammer and no less. So when you go to a brother and sister to correct them gently, and you're coming with the word of God, you are coming with a hammer. And if that hammer breaks them, then praise God. If that hammer causes them to repent and turn back to Christ, then praise God. So correcting gently is not correcting lightly. It is correcting as a cult that's been tamed with all the power of Christ in heaven. Oh, do we need more of that in our lives. We need people coming to ourselves, to you and to me, with the word of God and saying, Thus saith the word of the Lord, brother, I love you. This is what the Bible says, sister. I love you. Now, if you're tracking with me, and I pray you are. I pray I haven't lost you yet. You might be saying to yourself, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You said Jesus was perfect. And what Paul's teaching here, I think that Christ violated. I mean, twice. At least twice recorded. We are told that Jesus entered the temple. He made a whip out of cords. And he drove All from the temple courts, both the sheep and the cattle. It says in John 2, he scattered the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables to those who sold doves. He says, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now you might say, well, you, you just said right here, pastor, that we're supposed to correct our opponents with gentleness. And Christ is at least on two occasions, he made a whip, and he was turning tables over, and he was telling people to get out of here, and in the translation, it's not in the original Extent Manuscripts, but there's an exclamation point, and I think that's good. How was how that gentle? And how was that humble and patient? It was, certainly was a correction, but I, I, I think that maybe he violated this, did he not? Good. I'm glad you're shaking your head sister. Of course he did not. Let's fast forward to his time before the Sanhedrin, the the governing ruling body for the Jews that were going to hand him over to the Romans. They arrested him illegally in the middle of the night. They had a a false trial. And at that trial, they reviled him, they punched him in the face, they spit upon him, they said all kinds of evil lies against him, and he did not speak. He refused to defend himself. He was then handed over to the Romans where they took a cat and nine tails and they they tore his back to shreds, and then they nailed him to a cross, nails in his hands, nails in his feet. And the entire time, he remained silent like a lamb before the shears. What was the difference? Why the the anger, the righteous anger in the temple? And then why, at his arrest and persecution, why did he not speak? He was innocent. In the temple, he wasn't defending himself. In the temple, he was fighting for his father. In the temple, he was fighting for his church. So he expressed a right anger, a righteous anger for his father and for his father's house. But when it came to himself, he said nothing. And this, my beloved, is the true humility of a saint of God. You will, saved by grace, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you will fight for the honor of Christ. You will fight for the bride of Christ you will engage in these godly battles that our saints have been doing for the centuries. But when it comes to personal attacks upon you, you will be like that sheep before the shears and you will say nothing. You need not defend yourself. You need not engage in the foolish arguments for your reputation and your glory. You died and you're alive in Christ. You have no reason to do that. And yet when we whittle those foolish arguments down, aren't they mostly about us? how it made me feel, how it made me look. Christ gives us the perfect example of true humility, true power in weakness. And he calls every one of us to it. Not to quarrel, especially when it's about you. I mean, you know you, right? If someone accuses you of being a liar and you did not lie in that circumstance, that's okay, you are a liar, If someone accuses you of speaking poorly to someone, and even if you did not, you know you have, I mean, what are we going to defend? right? Our righteousness is in Christ. We know the depth of our hearts. We know the sin. Sometimes, my beloved, this takes the form of a Matthew 18 correction, a moving through a process. It's a major part of the ministry, and I would argue a defining characteristic of the true church, I wish at times it were not. I do. There are times when I so wish that that our love for one another and our pastoring did not have to have this piece of it, but true love does. In fact, if I ever find myself out of a job and just looking for a church to become a member of, you know one of my top five questions will be? I will sit down with those pastors and I will say, do you exercise church discipline? Not do you believe in church discipline because if they're a a solid, reformed, expository preaching church, they're of course going to say yes. The Bible teaches to it clearly and repeatedly again and again. I will say, do you exercise it? And if the answer is no, I would not stay there. Why? I know myself. I know how prone I am to sin. I know how desperately I need a body of believers who will say, Keith, you're messed up. You need help. I know how much my wife and my children need it too and I would not attend a church that does not exercise church discipline because that's not an exercise of love if they say, no, I won't. God gave the keys to the local church to correct gently those who have gone astray, those who have been ensnared by Satan. That's our job. So... We're not to quarrel. Number two, we are to correct. And lastly, and I'll close, we are to remain hopeful in the midst of all this because it's just hard. This is just hard. I mean, you were looking for a Father's Day sermon, you know, talking about the glorification of our God in heaven and the glory of the fathers on earth that God has blessed and maybe thinking about the cake we're going to have afterwards. This is hard. But this is what God has called us to and nothing less Number three, got to be hopeful. We are not to quarrel, we are to correct, and we got to remain hopeful. Look at this, correcting our opponents with gentleness. Verse 25, why? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. It has been my experience here over the years that when we engage in the Matthew 18 process, and you go to the brother or sister in sin, and you bring two or more, and then it comes before the church. By the time it gets to the last stage, and the church is informed and called to call the person to repent, by the time it gets there, the heart is usually so hard, the ears cannot hear. That does not mean that we're not supposed to do it. Because we don't see the results that we want, And that is a turning from the sins, reconciling with God, reconciling with the church, and coming back and having unity again. Because we do not see it does not mean we do not do it. It's led many in the church, even here, to argue that we ought not at all. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. The apostle destroys such foolishness in these next couple verses. In verses 25 and 26, he wants you to understand that this is a spiritual battle engaged with enemies of darkness. He even names the devil here and says, don't think that this person just got sideways a little bit, misinterpreted a particular passage. This is a spiritual battle and warfare we are called to engage in for the sake of God's children. If you do not believe that spiritual warfare is involved when people are ensnared in sin, then I want 25 and 26 to eradicate that foolishness. You see, sin is always a deviation from the truth. Sin is always a movement away from God and God's word. And the person living in willful, unrepentant sin, an opponent of God in the gospel, Paul says, lacks a knowledge of the truth. That either means they they knew it and they are dismissing it, or they never knew it in the first place. He says it's caused them to lose their senses. That word is so strong in the Greek. You know what that means? It means drunkenness. Same word that's used, talking about drunken revelry, except this is drunkenness with the truth. And then he says, and these are the heartbreaking words for us, he says they're already ensnared by the devil. They were already taken captive to do his will. Paul's not being hyperbolic. He's not just trying to get a rise out of the church. man. We better be serious about this. He's saying, this is spiritual warfare. The brother or sister who's in willful, unrepentant sin is trapped by Satan. Who are we not to help? Who are we to say, let's just keep the peace? Don't make an issue. Don't bring it up. Maybe it'll go away. We have no right to that. That's not love. That is the opposite of love. For those who have rendered themselves dishonorable vessels by, let's say, continuing the useful passions. Maybe they're not pursuing in that moment righteousness and faith and love and peace in community. Paul says they have already been entrapped and they are already doing the will of Satan. Now, let's be very careful. He does not mean that they have been undone salvifically. You cannot lose your salvation in Christ. But you can, your life can be rendered such as a dishonorable vessel that your testimony is no longer effective when Satan tempts you to doubt God's word, when Satan causes you to think about the sin as being not that sinful, when you're tempted to hear your brother or sister come to you in love and not listen. Even though your conscience testifies against you and you know they're right, you know they're right. The number of times over the years, oh, my beloved, the number of times that this has happened and people have gone and they've spoken the truth and you can see in their eyes, you know they know, you know they know, but they will not admit to it, not at the expense of their own pride. Now, we live in a time when corrective action in general is generally considered unloving. I mean, anything you do to take corrective action towards someone, it's considered unloving. And even within the evangelical church, where God's word is supposed to determine how we live our lives, we question the ability and authenticity of church discipline today. We call it harsh, unloving, overbearing, even when it's done in gentleness and love. Even when it's done correctly, according to Scripture, people say, no, you shouldn't have said anything. You shouldn't have done anything. Ensnared and captive by Satan. Ensnared and captive by Satan. If I'm in that situation, and you know it, and you do not come to me, you do not love me, if I know you're caught by the evil one, and you're struggling, and you're groveling, and he's taking you down, and I don't go to you to help you. I do not love you, no matter what I say. We go because Paul says that God may grant repentance. That's why we do it. God may grant repentance. Repentance. Your going and your speaking doesn't set them free. God must set them free. It's by His power that He does this. My beloved, not a single soul enters into the presence of God for eternity unless God makes that soul alive. They have to be born again to be saved and they have to be redeemed by Christ when they're in sin. It is a gift from God and that's made very clear in this verse. So what do we do for the unsaved? We share the gospel. Can you save them? Of course you can. But you're going to testify to Christ. You're going to talk about the glory and the holiness and the goodness of God. You're going to tell them about their sin, which they're not going to like to hear. You're going to tell them that they were born and sown in iniquity in their mother's womb, and they came out like that, and they lived a life of sin. But then you're going to offer them the hope of Christ. And you're going to say, Christ can set you free from that. He can not only forgive you of your sins, but he can give to you his righteousness and his goodness And then you'll call them to repent and believe. And if they do, it's God's doing. It wasn't your convincing argument. It wasn't that you made them feel guilty. It's God's work. It's the same here, my beloved. We go to people and we address the sin and we exercise church discipline not because we can get them out of their entrapment, but but God can. And this is the means of grace he uses. Gentle correction. Gentle training. Matthew 8 the church being involved this is our hope that God will do this work for our brothers and sisters maybe one day for you do not sit and listen as though you're always the one going brothers and sisters coming to you and speaking truth to you that you might be set free from the snare of the devil the apostle Paul after rebuking the Corinthian church, listen to this. He said in 2 Corinthians 7, nine. he said, Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended. Paul was happy. Their hearts were broken. He brought very harsh words, and they responded correctly. So here's the issue for us. If there is no correction, Listen. If you are just going to remain silent and you will say nothing and you'll be the isolated peacemaker, if there is no correction, there can be no sorrow. And if there is no sorrow, there can be no repentance. And if there is no repentance for your brother and sister, they are still ensnared by the devil. And that should bother you greatly. To not engage is easy, it is easy. I mean, we we live in a relatively autonomous society anyway. You can go to the grocery store and buy food by yourself. You can get in your car and you can drive to work by yourself. Many of us have jobs where we can work by ourselves. You can go home at night and you can stay in front of your TV or computer or your books by yourself. God has redeemed us in community because he knows sanctification requires people. We need each other. We need each other, The Son of God gave His life at Calvary to set us free from the power of sin and death eternally. My beloved, if God the Father went to such extremes that He would crucify His own Son to save sinners like us, if He would not only allow but purpose for his son to be treated as he was before the Sanhedrin, for his son to be treated as he was with the Romans, to endure upon that cross not just the physical pain, but three hours of the equivalent of your eternal damnation, bearing the wrath of a holy God for every sin you committed. If God's desire and love for us was to set us free from that eternally, then can't we, in the power of the Spirit, filled with grace, be okay with our feelings being hurt by going to a brother in love? If the Father went to such extremes to put Christ upon the cross, can't we be okay with having our egos bruised a little bit, our reputation maligned, people saying lies about you, maybe sending out letters about you? Can't we be okay with that? If this is the measure of love that Christ displayed, Can we, for a moment, set aside the desperate desire to be liked and love Christ more? Can we set aside that desperate need to get away from arguments and debates and go to people in love? I want us to be a people who take the risk of expressing a love that might cause offense Not looking for it. We don't be running around going, oh, I'm going to find someone's sin. I'm going to exercise what Pastor Keith is saying. I'm talking about when it's there, when it's noticeable and discernible, and they seem blind to it. Can we take the risk of loving radically like this as God the Father loves us radically in Christ? By God's grace over the years, you have been, as a church, amazingly faithful to this, which is not a good testimony to the church as a whole but I'm thankful for that. I pray that God would continue to give us the great strength to come to those who are stuck with God's word that what that they might know and understand the knowledge of truth that they might be come to their senses he says and escape the entrapment of the devil so they can stop doing Satan's will and begin again doing the Father's will the honorable vessels of gold and silver. I want God and I'll pray right now to give us hearts so compassionate that no matter what people say, how they treat you, the lies they may say against you or this church, I want us to love them well by correcting them gently and then praying to God that God would set them free from the entrapment they're in. I want us to love people as Christ loves us. He did that for you. Ought we not do that for one another? Let's pray to that end. Father, each of us knows how desperately we need people in our own lives, people that will not tickle our ears or Give us that kiss on the cheek as they send us to the cross. We need people in our lives who will truly love us as Christ does. Who will come alongside us instead of flattering us and lifting us up falsely. They will love us with truth, gently and humbly, but speak the truth to us in love. Father, I pray you would forgive us for being quiet when we should have been speaking. I pray, Father, you would forgive us for speaking, but not gently. I ask, Lord, that you would cultivate and continue to cultivate here a church that dares to risk our own reputation and our own relationships for the betterment of others. I pray we would not be okay, Father, seeing our brothers and sisters struggle in sin without speaking to them in love. And then I ask, Lord, that we would fall back upon your grace. You Must set them free. Help us not to be fooled in a process, but to put all of our hope in your saving grace. We ask so that you would do this for your own glory, that you would sanctify our church here in this way, that you would bless every true church here in this nation today with a better understanding of how we are to love one another from this text or any other you so choose. We ask you to do that, Father, that our lives would be like the honorable vessels. We'd be the faithful servants in all that we do, bringing you honor and glory in Christ's holy name. Amen.